Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So let's just have a few moments of silent prayer, so everyone make sure they're uh, ready to focus on the study of God's word and fellowship, and uh, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are the one who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. You are the God who has declared the end from the beginning. You are the God who is the unique creator of all things. And you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And in your word you have given us many convincing proofs of your existence and of the work that you are doing in history and of the veracity and power of your word. And now, Father, as we study your word, we're reminded of what uh, the prophet Isaiah said, that your word will not go forth from you uh, void, but will accomplish that which you have intended. And part of its purpose is to build and develop our spiritual lives that we might uh, grow and mature, and that God the Holy Spirit can produce in us the character of Christ, that you might be glorified. And we pray that that tonight's lesson, and as we study, that that would be part of the process. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9. Now, what we've been studying in 1 Kings has been the prayer of dedication, where Solomon prays dedicating the temple. And last time I gave a little review because I thought we would get into chapter 9. We never did. We spent most of our time talking about the details of the, <clears throat> of the sacrifices and how impressive that must have been in terms of just the, the number of animals, 120,000 sheep, the 22,000 bulls, and the enormous amount of blood, and everything else that gets produced in that entire process, and how that was planned for, how it was prepared for, and how it's all part of the, uh, part of that procedure. And just a, just one application from that is just the order, the organization, the administration of that is all part of how God's people should do things. And, and that's true for even 
uh, the church today. Now, as we look at that context, I want to remind you of what is happening because it's so important as we go into chapter 9 to under, to make sure we understand context. You know, there's a couple of little sayings that pastors are always fond of that when you teach anything, you have to always remember the context. It's, context is to Bible studies like location is to real estate. There's three basic laws to real estate, location, 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 and three basic laws for Bible study. It's context, context, context. Always make sure we understand the context of any verse, any promise, any statement in Scripture, because sometimes it's easy to read something that as we're reading through Scripture, somehow it impresses us, it impacts us, it sounds like it really relates to something that we're going through. But the reality is it's, it's in the context of something that is addressed to a specific person in the context of a specific set of circumstances, and it really has no application whatsoever to anybody else or any other situation. And there, there may not even be a principle there. You may think there is, but there may not even be a universal principle there. It's just something very, very specific. And we always laugh about these stories about um, people who are trying to figure out what to do with their life, and they close their eyes and they open their Bible, and they drop their finger down on the Bible, and it lands on something like Genesis 12 and says, go and leave your family. Oh, great, I'm you know, some father who's... Uh, got ten kids and a wife, and he's just overloaded. He decides now I'm going to leave my family and go do whatever. So you know, that's that's the kind of thing that too many people do in Bible study, and too many pastors do that. And we have to guard against all of those kinds of things. So a couple of the little sayings that I, I like are number one: if you take the text out of context, you're left with a con job. And too many Christians are really left with the con job because they've been taught that certain passages mean certain things. When you get into the context and really study the context, what you find out is it can't mean what people have traditionally thought it means and how many Christians traditionally apply a particular verse. And the other one is a text without a context is a pretext. And that too often happens too where pastors go and they find a verse that seems to fit a situation and they build a sermon around it to say what they want to say rather than what the text says. And all of this, as you'll see by the end of the night, has a very specific purpose. And several times as we've gone through our study in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, I have made a point of picking out a particular phrase and asking you to the point of ridiculousness and redundancy to identify who the phrase is talking about. And one of the places that we find this is in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 30. And just to remind you, the structure here is so important. If, if you've learned anything from me over the last four years or so, and for some of you longer than that, as, you, as you've studied through what I've taught at Preston City and here, is the importance that everything that happens after Genesis 12 has to be interpreted in light of the Abrahamic covenant. And everything after the Exodus has to be interpreted not only in light of the Abrahamic covenant, but also in light of the Mosaic covenant. 
Because when you get to many of the key passages that we go to in the Old Testament, they are building off of what God promised in those covenants. And one of the things that I emphasized as we went through Solomon's prayer of dedication is that it's a tremendous example of the faith rest drill. Now, we normally think of the faith rest drill as being in a crisis situation and being faced with some sort of problem or adversity or difficulty to surmount or where we are under temptation, we're worried, we're fearful, we're scared, and we use familiar promises that we claim that God is with us, God is the one who sustains us, we're not to be anxious for anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known unto God, and we are to pray without ceasing, and that um, uh, if we ask in faith, God will get answer our prayers, and all of these kinds of promises. But there's other promises in the Bible, there are promises of blessing and, that are linked to promises of judgment. And we took a lot of time going back and, and examining the, the, the passages related to the five stages of discipline God said that he would take Israel through as part of the Mosaic Law. And in the Mosaic Law, you had all of the stipulations in the law. And at the end of the law, there are two sets of promises. There's a set of promises related to blessing that if you obey me and you do all the things that are in the book of the law, then I will bless you in all of these different ways and you will be uh, uh, known throughout the world and people will marvel at how God has blessed you. But on the other hand, if you are not obedient, God said, I will do these things to you. And in, in Leviticus uh, 17, it talks about the fact that, that uh, or Leviticus 27 talks about the fact that if you, you do these various things and then you don't return to me, then I will increase the discipline sevenfold. And then if you do these things, then I'll do these things to you. And, and if you don't obey me, then I will do these, these other things sevenfold. And it just continues in, in that particular uh, nature all the way through the five cycles of discipline, and the fourth emphasizes, as do a couple of others, but the fourth really emphasizes military conquest over Israel, and then the fifth one, they would be removed from the land. And the land was a key thing that you see as you go through uh, the various different uh, disciplines as they are outlined, because it was the land promise that God gave to Abraham that was so crucial that if that God promised them a piece of real estate, but there was a condition in the Abrahamic covenant. It wasn't a condition related to ownership. It was a condition related to uh, enjoyment of ownership. And the condition was that if you are not walking with me, then I'm not going to allow you to enjoy ownership. And if, if you reach a level of disobedience that is so extreme that I have to, uh, that I will take you out of the land in order to make sure that you understand and learn the lesson. So the uh, passages in Leviticus chapter 26 that go through the stages of discipline, I misstated that earlier as, as 27, but it's 26, and in, in Deuteronomy chapters uh, 29 and 30, which relate to the land covenant itself, that's the Palestinian covenant, the issue is, what must Israel do to enjoy blessing in the land? And the theme of this whole prayer, to bring us back to, to the context here, is that, that uh, Solomon 
has seven distinct petitions in the prayer. And in these seven petitions, he is weaving together the, the ideas and the themes of discipline out of Leviticus 26 and out of, uh, out of Deuteronomy 29. And he is reminding God of what he has promised that in terms of discipline, when the people are defeated, when the people are going through famine or pestilence, when the uh, crops are being eaten by the locusts and the grasshoppers, and when the pestilence and the, and, and the mildew and the blight comes upon the crops, when your people then turn back to you and confess uh, your name and, uh, and obey you, then forgive them. And that was the repeated uh, petition in the prayer. They're calling upon God to forgive them, forgive them, forgive them every time they turn back and to bring them back to the land so that they can then glorify God in this place related to, of course, the temple. So the, the occasion, the first thing we need to remember is the occasion is that he has completed the building of the temple, which fulfills a promise that God made to David. And so he is saying, in the same way that you fulfilled that promise, literally, I'm calling upon you to remember the promises you made at the end of the Mosaic Law and to fulfill those literally and bring the people back to the land when they turn back to you after you have disciplined them. And all of that was laid out within the, uh, within the structure of the of the law itself. And so again and again and again, as we read through this passage, we, we run across this, this phrase, your people. And sometimes it's qualified as your people Israel. But we understand that every time we see the phrase your people, the your refers to God and the people refers to Israel. And the reason it can only refer to Israel and can't even apply to anybody else is what? Because it all flows out of the contract that God made with Israel, the Mosaic contract. And, and even though there are, uh, some, some principles at different areas of, of obedience within the Mosaic law that we can go to, when it comes to specific promises that God made to Israel in relationship to the land and in relationship to their future, it doesn't apply to any other nation because there is no other people on earth that God has entered into a covenant with. There are other nations, especially in the, in the period of the Gentiles, uh, when the Gentiles are oppressing Israel, the times of the Gentiles, that you have God using different Gentile nations for different purposes. And sometimes that's referred to as client nations, but you can't, well, however you refer to that term, that, that, that situation, God using those nations, Whatever term you use to refer to how God uses Gentile nations in the church age, you cannot use the same term that you use to apply to Israel because Israel is a unique nation with a unique contract status or covenant status with God that is not true of any other nation in all of history. And no other nation in history, no other ethnic group in history, no other people in history is guaranteed the right to a specific piece of real estate and to specific blessings that are tied to that to that piece of real estate. And so all the way through Solomon's request is he is talking to God about your people and when your people turn back to you and your people worship your name and when your people Israel uh, turn to you, then would you forgive your people Israel? So I've probably belabored that point enough, but I want to make sure that you get this because of where we're, where we're headed. 
Now, the other thing that I want you to remember and just bring up by way of review is that there were four different words that were used for prayer in the context of First Kings chapter 8. And the first one we'll see in First Kings 8.28, yet regard the prayer of your servant, his supplication. That was the word tepelah. Uh, which is used uh, 76 times and is a general word for prayer that emphasizes a plea from an inferior uh, to a superior. And that's the word uh, tepala. Then we had a second word. I'm going to go through these kind of fast, so uh, write them down quick. The second word is supplication. that's used in the same verse, tehina. Uh, which is more the idea of a request for favor, an appeal for grace. And the root of this is that root, the chet uh, and the nun, the chet chan, which is, relates to grace. That's the root word related to grace. So it's appeal for favor, an appeal to God's grace to bestow something upon us that is undeserving. A third word that is used in this same verse is the word that is translated cry, and that is the word rena, and it indicates a shout or a moan. It has an emotional content. It can be a shout of joy. Sometimes when we pray to God, we're expressing joy and gratitude for what he's done, and it's just there's a level of excitement there. On the other hand, sometimes we're just overwhelmed with the adversities of life, and it's it's virtually uh, a moan or a groan, and that's sort of what Paul's referring to in Romans chapter 8 when he talks about the fact that sometimes we don't know what to pray for, but the Holy Spirit is able to understand even our our groans. Uh, then a fourth word is the word uh, palal, and that's related uh, etymologically to tepilah, and has that same idea, but but it has a little different idea. In the in the Hithbile, it has the idea of praying or interceding for some someone else. And this, the root of this, is the same word that is used for the uh, prayer clause that you'll see uh, observant Jewish uh, males wearing um, when they uh, when they pray. So these are the four words for prayer, indicating certain different aspects. Uh, certain different dimensions of our prayer life that we are truly uh, expressing our dependence upon God, calling upon Him to deal with us and uh, with undeserved favor, and at the same time we recognize that we are, we also pray and intercede for others. So these are these are four key words, and all of this sets the context. And what Solomon has been doing is he is pleading with God to fulfill his promises that he has made in the Old Testament. So it's an application not only in the area of prayer, but we see application in the area of using uh, the faith rest drill, which often is used within the context of prayer. And um, let me see. I think that is as far as we need to go in this particular uh, this particular passage. So I'm going to end there and go over to this section. Now, I want you to turn to come to chapter nine while the programs are booting up on the for the for the screen, and let's just look at the context of what happens in First Kings chapter nine. 
following all of the dedication to the temple, all the sacrifices at the end of the two weeks of the observance of the, of the, of the feast, it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all, um, and all of Solomon's desire which he wanted to do that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time. Now, he had appeared to him uh, earlier at Gibeon and now he appears a second time. So this is a theophany which refer, refers to an appearance of God. Uh, and Solomon is, of course, not seeing God the Father. He is seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, because we know from, from John chapter 1 that when Jesus appeared, he said that, but no man has seen him at any time. And I'm just going to have to get out of this, because when that crashed, it really crashed. So... We're going to go to plan B. Always have a plan B. And always try to figure out if you can be flexible enough to go to plan B. Okay, now. This is why I have three or four different Bible study programs on the computer. Okay. While that is trying to boot up and see if we can use that, I'm just trying to make things simple for you. I want you to, this is what makes it difficult, I want you to turn over in a couple of books to Second Chronicles chapter 7. And what you're going to have to do now, because the technology has failed, is we're going to have to compare, we're going to have to look at both of these passages in order to understand what is going on here, because both the First Kings nine passage and the Second Chronicles passage are going to uh, explain for us what is going on in God's answer. But these are very different. Uh, these are parallel. While these are parallel passages, they are. Um, See if I can even do this. While while these are, uh, shut down the whole thing. We're just going to have to do it the old-fashioned hard way tonight. They don't. Neither passage gives us everything that God said to Solomon, so we have to do a little comparison and contrast. Uh, verse 2, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. Now, look over to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night. We're not uh, told that in the, um, in the king's passage. It's, it's a nighttime appearance. And in the Chronicles account, we have an ex- we have an expansion and an insertion of several verses. Most of uh, the the last half of verse twelve, verse thirteen, verse fourteen, verse fifteen, are all inserted in the Chronicles account, and they're not present in the Kings account. 
what we learn from, from the kings is just that the Lord appears to Solomon a second time, which is not what's uh, um, stated in the um, uh, Chronicles passage. There we read the Lord, verse 12, And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Now, look at verse 13. We don't, it's interesting, we don't see 13, 14, and 15 in Kings. They're, they're there for a reason in Chronicles. Chronicles is written, uh, towards the end of the, of the, um, of the exile and right after the exile to remind the Jews of who they were under the, under the Mosaic law and all that God had done for them in the past. It focuses primarily on Judah. And the, the emphasis is on restoring the temple and the temple worship and the priesthood as it was before the exile. That's why you have all those long genealogies because they've got to re-identify who all the priests are. And so they have to, they bring all of that in there. But, uh, it's reiterating what God has now already done in terms of taking them out of the land under discipline and fulfilling the request of Solomon to bring them back to the land, and the prayer of Daniel that we looked at in Daniel chapter 9 to bring them back to the land. And so God answers Solomon, telling him that he will fulfill the the prayer request. And he says, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, that's yet to happen. We'll see that happen uh, in 1 Kings chapter 17, when uh, Elijah comes on the scene, because the first thing we see Elijah do is come walk into the presence of of Ahab, who is one of the greatest monarchs of the ancient world. He's not just some regional little uh, king in Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel is a major power under Ahab, and he is a major player on the world scene. And Elijah just suddenly appears in his presence and says, it's not going to rain again until I say so. So when God speaks in verse 13, he says, When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land. Now, where have we heard that before? We heard both of those as examples of the of two of the different seven petitions in Solomon's prayer in, in 1 Kings 8. That is, the parallel to that prayer is given in, in, in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, by the way. But those were mentioned there as examples of the divine discipline and judgment God would bring on the nation. So God says, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. Who are my people? Israel. Only Israel. The, the term, my people... Spoken by God, there's a couple of times when it's lowercase my people and David or Solomon or somebody's talking about uh, the Israelites as my people. But when God speaks, uh, God uses the phrase my people 13 times in First and Second Chronicles, and in every instance, this is context, in every instance it refers to Israel. Every time God speaks and says my people in First and Second Chronicles, it always refers to Israel. It's used 30 times from Joshua to Esther, the historical books that cover the historical period in Israel. 30 times it's used from Joshua to Esther in the historical books. And when God is speaking, it always refers to Israel. 
In the entire Old Testament, whenever God is speaking and he says, my people, it never refers to anybody other than the Israelites. It doesn't refer to believers. It's never a term for believers. It is a term for ethnic Israel that are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that are in covenant relationship to God under the Mosaic Covenant. Also, we see that the phrase, your people, when used in the historical books, always refers to uh, Israel, and um, when God is the one that is speaking, and it's uh, further defined in many contexts as your people, Israel. For example, 2 Samuel 7.24, which is part of the Davidic covenant, which also forms a backdrop for this particular uh, prayer, 2 Samuel 7.24 states, For you, David is praying, For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. Ten times in 2 Chronicles 6, the phrase, Your people is used by Solomon in his prayer, and it always refers to Israel. It never refers to anybody else. And there, and none, nothing in First and in, in, in First Kings eight or in Second Chronicles six can possibly be applied to any other nation because there is no other nation that's in a covenant relationship with God. I know I'm sounding really redundant, but I've taught this before. If you, when I get to where I'm going, um, some of you will scream. The conclusion from this is that the context of the Old Testament, the context of 1 Kings, and the context of 2 Chronicles indicate that the phrases, your people and my people, always refer literally and directly to Israel. They're always used within covenant context back to the Mosaic Law, and they're usually used in context that can't ever even be extrapolated in, in a universal principle to, to any other nation other than recognizing that God is true to his word and God is going to bless those who obey him and he's going to bring judgment upon those who judge him. But that's that's so universal, it's, it really gets divorced from the text. So the broad context, again, is that God is answering Solomon's prayer, and that's clear from verse 13, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, See, what was the first thing that, 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 that Solomon said every time he made those prayer requests, those seven petitions? He said, when this happens, when there's the rain dries up, and then my people what? Then my people turn back to you, and my people confess their sins, and my people uh, worship you, then forgive them of their sins and return to the land. That's the pattern in those seven things. When the people sin... And then they turn, and then they um, they can, can, uh, they they pray to you, and they uh, confess your name. Then you will return them to the land, right? So what God is doing is summarizing the first part of those those seven petitions in verse thirteen, when He says, "When I shut up heaven." And there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. See, that's the verse. And you have heard that so many times by numerous pastors, everybody likes to trot that out on July 4th and, and every, every type of 
American national holiday call for the repentance of if God's people. God's people are Israel in this context. You can't even extrapolate it to refer to believers. He's not ta- even talking about believers in the land in this passage. He's talking about ethnic covenant Israel, period. You can't extrapolate it or apply it to anybody else. Because what he, the whole context indicates that God is simply answering Solomon's prayer request in light of what he promised to Israel and Israel only in the Mosaic Covenant. Those five cycles of discipline aren't for anybody else. How do you know that? Well, number one, it's addressed to Israel. And number two, the key element, as I stated earlier, in every one of those five cycles of discipline, it has something to do with punishment on the land. And they're the only people in history that have a promise from God and a right to any piece of real estate on earth. So you can't extrapolate that as much as we love manifest destiny and as patriotic as we are. And in Texans, we have a double dose of patriotism. We don't have a right to this land. There is no piece of paper that God ever signed that gave us the right to this land north of the Rio Grande. And there's no right of, of, of Americans or anybody to the land between the Atlantic and the Pacific. There's no piece. The French don't have a right to France. The Germans don't have a right to Germany. The British don't have a right to Britain. I know this just flies in the face of everybody. But only the Jews have a right to that land. They're the only ones who have a God-given right to the land. And so when we come to this verse, which is so abused, so abused, uh, we have to understand what the context is. If my people, God is saying, if my people, that is Israel, the ones I've made this promise to, who are called by my name. You know, Americans don't have Yahweh or Elohim or Adonai as part of their name, but Israel, has, the El is part of Elohim, and they are called by God's name. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves. That's the whole issue that, that uh, Solomon has been raising humble themselves, and pray and seek my face. And there's tipola again, same words for prayer that come right out of the context of what uh, Solomon had just said. And pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. That's that word shuv. And even today when a Jew decides to move from being a secular Jew or a barely observant Jew to an observant Jew, it, it's called doing shuva or turning. They are. It's, it's, the, it's the same word from which we we translate it repent, and it means to turn. And so this is if the people do shuva and they turn, and from their wicked ways, God says, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. See, it's basically a promise. He's promising to do exactly what Solomon had requested that when the people confess their sin and turn back to God, that God would uh, relax the discipline if they're still in the land to end the discipline and heal the land, and if they're out of the land, to restore them to the land. And so Second Chronicles 7.14 is not a verse that can be even applied to any other nation. If you can apply this verse to other nations and to other peoples, then you can apply... Verse 17, in some way, to other people. Because it's all part of the same context. And so if we just get down to verse 17, God says to, to, David, to Solomon, As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, 
So you can't apply that to anybody else. Only in a very broad, broad sense that God says that he's going to fulfill a promise and bless somebody. But that's such a broad, general promise that really stretches the whole concept of application or principle. Uh, as for you, so God is going to make specific promises again again to Solomon here. But verses 13 through 15 give a specific answer to the prayer that Solomon has uh, given at the um, has has has, uh, has given just at the dedication of the temple. Now, a number of years ago, when I wrote the spiritual warfare book, and Tommy and I wrote it, and I, I wrote the chapter on prayer that's in there, and uh, and uh, on claiming promises, I said you have to make sure that the promises that God that you claim are promises that God gave to you, and not promises that God gave to Abraham or to Moses or to Israel or to the disciples, but are truly promises that you and I as believers can still apply. And some of the Old Testament promises, even though they fit a specific situation like Isaiah 41.10 or Isaiah 40.31 or other 40, uh, 40, and some others like that, they still are basically general principles they can be applied by any believer at any time because they're not located tightly within a within a mosaic covenant framework. But this is totally different. It, the whole context here is legal, and so people people abuse that. Well, about I think it was about six months or so, or maybe maybe it was a couple of years after uh, after we wrote that book, Tommy was invited to speak at chapel at Liberty University. And so he, uh, he's, or he was speak, he, he speaking in chapel, and he was supposed to speak on hermeneutics. So he decided to speak on the importance of context. And he used Second Chronicles 7.14 as the verse for, for the importance of context. Now, if you don't know this, uh, Liberty University was founded by Jerry Falwell. And Jerry Falwell was the founder of the uh, Moral Majority, and Jerry Falwell was very patriotic and very pro-American, and one of numerous pastors throughout the country who tend to uh, blend uh, Christianity and patriotism a little too closely. And Tommy didn't know this, but that year, Falwell had chosen this verse as the uh, yearly verse for Liberty University in calling the nation back to repentance. <laughs> and so Tommy's in in the chapel, this large group, and you know he comes to question. He says, uh, "Dr. Ice, uh, are you aware that Dr. Falwell has made that the uh, uh, campus verse for this year?" <laughs> and he said, well, "I don't care. Falwell's wrong." But one of the reasons that I, I went through all the buildup is as many times as I've taught this, so many people have heard this verse used over and over and over and over and over and over again by, by all kinds of people across the spectrum that this is a verse that you can apply to America. And, and Christians are truly and genuinely concerned about the state of this nation because it is in a state of of immorality, it's in a state of apostasy and rebellion against God, and this is a nation that was founded on biblical principles. It is a nation that was founded, and its 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 institutions, its laws, its social structures all came out of a biblical 
uh, a biblical framework. And all of the colonies were founded by different groups of people, different denominations. You had uh, some Baptists who went to Rhode Island. You had uh, uh, Congregationalists. Uh, and Puritans that went to uh, Massachusetts and Pur- Puritans that went to uh, Connecticut. You had Anglicans that were in uh, in Virginia. You had uh, enormous migration of Scots-Irish Presbyterians between 1750 and 1770. It's like half the Scots-Irish Presbyterians in Ireland and Scotland uh, migrated to uh, to the colonies in the United States and brought their very strong uh, Presbyterian Calvinism with them. But that wasn't new to America because the Anglicans that were here were strong Calvinists. The uh, Puritans that were here, the Congregationalists, everybody was was influenced by the thinking of, uh, of, of John Calvin, Calvinism, and and out of the Reformation, there was a tremendous amount of clear thinking that was done on uh, on government, on nations, on the relationship of believers to authorities, and dealing with passages like Romans chapter 13 that deal with the the authorities that God creates over us. That even when it is a, a tyrannical authority, as it was when Paul wrote it, that nevertheless God is the one who raises up, God is the one who tears down authorities. And so there was a lot of discussion on that because there are times, and the Scripture clearly backs it up. When authority, secular authorities overstep their boundaries and infringe upon the rights of believers to obey the direct commandments of God and to fulfill what God has said. And one of my favorite stories is when uh, John Knox called uh, the, the, the Queen Mary of Scotland a bloody whore because of her allegiance to uh, Roman Catholic Church. These guys had absolutely uh, no fear whatsoever. And the British, one of the reasons the British had a fear of what was going on in, in America, in the American Revolution, because they understood that the greatest enemy that they had were the Presbyterian preachers. They referred to them as the Black Robe Brigade because it was the Presbyterian uh, preachers who were uh, ch- challenging the tyrannical tax policies of Britain. And so pastors in this country have always played a role of addressing social issues, social problems, and political problems. And we live in an era today when uh, pastors are, tr- they are trying to shut down pastors and intimidate pastors. And every time you have an election year, you have um, uh, different uh, ACLU-type groups and atheist organizations, atheists for the separation of church and state and all these kinds of things, try to intimidate people into thinking that churches can't get involved in politics and pastors can't talk about politics and they can't endorse candidates. Churches can't endorse candidates, but pastors can and all of these other things, and it is an intimidation of free speech, an intimidation of the pulpit to address the issues that should be the focal point in people's thinking during uh, during election years and that kind of thing. But what we, we've got to be careful when pastors address these things to address them from a bi- solid biblical framework and not let cultural uh, aspects. Uh, influence their interpretation of Scripture. It's good to be patriotic, 
but our citizenship ultimately is in heaven. And as I believe that even though our citizenship spiritually is in heaven, that doesn't absolve us of any level of human responsibility. And if you're a school teacher, you need to perform your function as a school teacher to the fullest extent to glorify God in everything that you do. And you have certain rights as a school teacher that you should be familiar with and know exactly what you can say and what you can do in the classroom and, and how to get around things. And I always love what my wife does. She usually figures out by the second or third week of school which kids in the classroom are saved. And so then when a, another kid later on, like it comes to Christmas, what do we, what, what's Christmas all about? She'll ask the kid she knows a believer to explain who Jesus is. And so she gets the kids to witness to the other kids. And if there's no believers there, then she just switches into Spanish and gives them all the gospel, and nobody (laughs) who's listening in can figure out what she's doing. So, you know, there's all kinds of ways in which you, as a teacher in a classroom, can uh, not let the state tell you what you can say and what you can't say about, uh, about absolute truth. And you can't let them be intimidated. There's a number of good websites and good organizations, legal uh, organizations. I'll mention some of them at some point that you can go to and read up on these things. And then, uh, but whatever job you're in, if you're an engineer, you're to do your job as unto the Lord to glorify Him in everything you do. If you are a, um, if you're working in construction, you're a plumber, you're an electrician, you're a a highway construction worker. Everything that we do, we're to do it to the glory of God, including the responsibilities of our citizenship. Because if we're born in this nation, we are given certain responsibilities as citizens, responsibilities and privileges to vote and to be involved in the political process. And involvement isn't activism. Involvement is involvement. Over the last 40 or 50 years, uh, too many conservatives and evangelicals have become fairly passive. And just last month when we had our, our primary here in Texas, and I decided that um, we would just not have Bible class that Tuesday night so that people could, if they wanted to, not feel a conflict and encourage people to participate in their local precinct politics. And I was amazed how many people went, but what really amazed me was how many people commented to me same story I had, that when I was a kid, my parents always went to their precinct meetings. They were always involved. And since I've been an adult, I've never done it. But I'm going to do it this year. And there were a lot of people who went, and there were a number of people. You know, you know if we had known it, this church could have dominated the next convention because there were so few Republicans that showed up. In most precincts, they didn't even have their maximum number in our precinct. There were 23, we were allotted 23 delegates to the, uh, to the next level. What's the next level called, Alan? The district, the district level? Yeah. And, and so, uh, yeah, county or district. And so everybody who went to that, uh, uh, usually who went to their precinct meeting could, could go as a delegate to the district meeting. And we had 17 people show up, and we unanimously appointed every one of us as a, as a representative. And there were at least four, five, or six people from, this church who were at the district meeting and there were others who decide, who listened by live stream who decided to go and got appointed to their district. And if they, you wanted to go ahead and get involved and go to the next level, you could. But the passivity, you know, we look around and we complain a lot about where this country is going, but when you look at how few people, conservatives, were actually at that precinct level meeting, uh, 
And it was amazing how many things could get done there. And there were a lot of really good resolutions passed at our, at our precinct level meeting. Very good, solid, uh, solid resolutions. But that's the grassroots and we need to be involved. And there is a, I think there is a very solid biblical rationale that it's just one, just like any other responsibility in life and we need to do it to the best, fullest extent we can and to the glory of God. But on the other hand, we have to keep things in perspective. That politics is politics and has to do with the organization, the administration of the national entity in which we live, but it doesn't supplant or distract us from our, uh, from our spiritual life. But we have to recognize that if we're not involved in the process, the forces that are wanting to take away our freedoms are massing on the horizon in enormous, in enormous numbers. And I was at a meeting on Monday with the head of one of these uh, pro bono legal, uh, liberty legal defense groups that had, in fact, the lawyer who spoke with us was the man who was the lead counsel in the Tyndale Seminary case. And if you're not familiar with that, the state of Texas uh, in a very illegal manner, uh, passed a law in the early 80s. Nobody knew what it was. It was part of one of these education reform bills. Somebody slipped this in when nobody was watching, that all uh, schools and institutions of higher learning, including seminaries, had to be approved by the uh, Texas State Department of Education in the granting of, of degrees and in their curriculum, which basically put... Uh, the state in control of the curriculum and qualifying the curriculum of all religious educa- higher religious education in the state of Texas. And there's a reason that if you go to SMU, which is a private school, they have Perkins Seminary. But if you go to University of Texas, you have a law school and a medical school, but you don't have a seminary because it's not the, the state can't get involved in religious education. And so they uh, fined Tyndale because they had um, given degrees, called themselves a seminary, given THMs and THDs to several students, fined them about $175,000, and it dragged through the courts, went through every level, at the, uh, at the first, at, and at every level they found in favor of the state. And um, when it finally made it to the Supreme Court, Everybody on the Supreme Court realized what the principle was, and it got uh, it got reversed at the Supreme Court level. But there have been various other cases that have been going on in the state of Texas, where you have school teachers. There was one particular case involving a, a, a lady who had um, had been qualified. Educated, qualified, certified to be a principal, and that had really been her life goal: is to be the principal of an elementary school. And she finally, a slot in her school district opened up, and she uh, was offered the job. And they said there was one condition: that her children were going to a private Christian school, and they would have to come to be enrolled in the uh, in the school district, or she could not have the job. And this little woman would not back down, and she called up uh, Kelly Shackelford, and they represented her, and they just they just slammed that school district, and and it went through a couple of different levels of court cases, but it was reinforced by the courts that 
parents have the right to determine who educates their children, and the state doesn't have the right to intimidate teachers in that way. And one of the reasons it passed through the lower court levels was because every school district in Texas was doing that. They were telling teachers that, that if you have children, you can't have them in a private school. You can't have them in a Christian school. You need to have them uh, in the classroom. And so that, uh, that was established. But these are ways in which our freedoms are being attacked again and again and again. And one of the ways in which this is going to really be driven home in the next five years, and I believe probably in the next legislature and why it is so important to keep certain people out of Congress. And I doubt that it's going to happen. But in the last Congress, they voted down the hate speech legislation and they voted down the ENDA uh, legislation, which is the Employer Non-Discrimination Act, which means that employers uh, can't discriminate against uh, people for their sexual orientation. And that is going to be applied to churches, so if if uh, somebody wakes up one morning in the church and decides, you know, I was I'm a woman born in a man's body, and they want to, you know, the pastor or the secretary wants to start cross dressing, or the uh, first grade Sunday school teacher wants to start wearing a, uh, a dress to church on Sunday morning to teach a first grade class, there's nothing you can do about it. And the the uh, and he read from uh, one particular. The email that had gone out from one of the uh, militant lesbian groups saying that they are specifically going to be targeting, uh, and they named a number of large ministries, nationally known ministries, be, uh, and, and taking them to court because their positions that homosexuality is a sin is hate speech. And if that hate speech legislation gets passed, then that means that, and you, there have been instances of this in England and uh, there's a case in Canada where a pastor was reading from Romans 1 and they arrested him because that was hate speech, hate speech because it condemns uh, homosexuality as, as a sin. And so this is coming. And the, the forces, you know, we've heard rumors and uh, we've heard talk and there are things happening in other, in other countries, but this is coming here, and the forces are really gathering. And we were fortunate in the last legislature that this legislation got voted down. But when this happens, churches, one of the things they can do to protect themselves, I don't know how long it will last, is to have very clear statements in their constitution and bylaws about the fact that we do not believe on the basis of our understanding of the Bible that women should be pastors or be ordained or serve in pastoral ministry. We do not believe that anyone who is discovered to be a practicing homosexual or adulterer, and throw in any other sins, thief, uh, homosexuality, you're not just singling out one group, that anyone who's discovered to be practicing this is, is not going to be allowed, their membership will be terminated, these kinds of things, in order to protect the church because our, our, uh, we, we've got a battle coming. And so we have to be prepared for this, and the only thing that, that can prepare us for it is really the truth. And uh, freedom rarely lasts for any length of time in any civilization. And we really haven't had uh, most of our freedoms for at least uh, 40 or 50 years, but the forces that seek to destroy those freedoms are uh, really poised, 
And I believe that we're, we're in the danger in the next five to ten years of losing substantive, foundational, Bill of Rights guaranteed freedoms because there's too many people who, apart from a Christ, general Christian theistic framework, have no basis for honoring real freedom because if a Christian operating from a position of absolutes is free to say that what they are doing is wrong, they are going to just go ballistic over that because they're shaking their fist in God's face. And that's and you see this, and you will see tremendous examples of this in this film, Expelled, that we're going to see on Friday night just in the academic realm. So just a word of warning of things to come. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we do thank you that we have had the freedoms we've had in this country, that we've had the freedom to proclaim your word, the truth of your word, proclaim the cross as the only way of salvation, that Jesus Christ is your eternal Son who came to earth to die on the cross for our sins and to claim and proclaim all of the truths of Scripture. And we pray that in this coming election year and election cycle and in the coming years that there will be believers who know the truth, who, who will be involved and be willing to influence the nation from their position of strength, their position of truth, acting as salt and light just as our forefathers have done, not in an inappropriate way, in a militant way, but in within the structures of our government and our civilization. Father, we pray that you would give us opportunities to preserve these freedoms so that we can continue to send out missionaries and continue to be a bulwark of support for Israel in the Middle East. Father, we pray that we might recognize that our spiritual life is not just something that relates to our day-to-day walk with you, but it also impacts the, the blessing by association that affects all around us because of the doctrine in our own souls and the way we apply it in every area of life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.